I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey folks, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 116, and my guest today is the legendary recording engineer and producer, Mr. Bill Schnee. That means it's Schnee Day here on the podcast. Oh yes. Hope everyone's doing well out there and not getting too freaked out with all the latest COVID variant chatter. Let's hope that goes away sooner than later. Things are pretty good here in Nashville. I've been doing a lot of remote recording still, some sessions around town, a bit of mixing. I'm kind of set up temporarily in my house while we keep working on the studio, which should be finished in January. We're kind of gutting our uh, big recording area and putting in soundproofing and sound treatment and working on the control room and all that stuff. So it's kind of fun and exciting, but that's where that's at. We're still working and I'm in a bedroom currently. Um, we made an announcement this week I would like to share with you. We're going to be doing this program here called the Hen House Hang, and it's going to happen in October of 2022. It's basically a four-day intensive recording experience here in Nashville at my studio focused on recording roots and Americana music. We will put everyone up in the same hotel and we'll work in my studio every day with myself and an engineer that I've made tons of records with, Sheldon Zaharko. And we'll also do a little sightseeing and we will look at recording all the instruments used in this style of music and also recording a live situation with a bunch of great musicians playing together in the same room at the same time. And we'll learn some of the ins and outs of of recording in that style. So it should be tons of fun. And we've just opened up the bookings for it now. It's limited to 10 people only. So if you're interested, jump on it soon. You can get info on that and uh, contact us about booking or any questions you may have at stevedawson.ca. Um, there is a link to it. It's called the Hen House Hang and it's the link is right on the front page under latest news. So uh, before we get going here, I would just like to thank a recent financial supporter of the show this week. Couldn't do it without you. Greatly appreciate it. And thanks to Kevin Hodgins for kicking in. Appreciate you, man. All right, then. Today's guest is one of the most legendary engineers and producers in the biz, Mr. Bill Schnee. He lives here in Nashville now, but he spent the bulk of his career in Los Angeles Bill has just released a book called Chairman at the Board, which we talk about as though it's not out yet, but we did this interview a while back and it is indeed out now and I'd highly recommend you go check it out. Bill has had a really interesting career working on tons of classic records. He's been nominated for 11 engineering Grammys. That's quite a few. And his career has spanned decades, really. His his early days of coming up in L.A. through his work with Richie Podler is really an interesting story. And I cannot imagine a career trajectory like Bill's would be possible in this day and age. But the way he got in there and the way that he succeeded is really wild. I love how he learns a lot of his craft just being on the job and doing it rather than learning theory or techniques at some school. Anyway, after his career got going, he had some really incredible early success working on records for Carol King and Barbara Streisand, and then it, it just seemed like the floodgates opened, and he was really uh, one of the main go-to engineers in L.A. and got the call to work on records for Steely Dan, Marvin Gaye, The Pointer Sisters, Mark Knopfler, Neil Diamond, Rod Stewart, 
and so many more. It's hard to know how to navigate all that in the time we had, so we sort of focus on a few of those things and get into some of his interesting recordings with Thelma Houston, Miles Davis, Ringo Starr, and some of his recent work, uh, including a very cool project with Mandy Barnett. In any case, Bill's a fascinating guy. He's got tons of stories and ideas. You can find his website at billschnee.com, and that is Bill Schnee, is S-C-H-N-E-E.com. And that's where you can go to order his book. So go do that and kick back and enjoy my conversation now with Mr. Bill Schnee. I wonder if maybe we should just launch in and just talk for a minute about your book. Like, I, I know that you've got a book coming out in, in March. Um, I know that it's called Chairman at the Board. I assume it's about your life and career and some of the recording session stories. And I just wonder if m- maybe you could tell me a little bit about that process for you. You know, I think that must be pretty interesting looking back at, at things. I don't know how well you documented stuff at the time or if that kind of information was all available. And I don't know if you're one of those people that has an incredible memory or if you had to like really dig for it. What was the whole thing like for you? Well, I love telling stories. And uh, for years now, people had said, why don't you write a book? And I thought, I, you know, it just it just seems too self-serving. You know, it'd be a mm-hmm. book of I did this and then I did that and then I did this. And then I did that. And it wasn't until uh, a, a producer that, uh, of a Brazilian act that took me to dinner after we finished mixing uh, said, you should write a book. And I said, yeah, well, maybe. And he said, no, listen, the record business as we know it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and peaked in the 70s, going into the 80s. It was a very iconic time, never to be repeated, and you were there. And when he said you were there, it struck me, I don't have to write just about things that I did. I can write stories about other things that I saw mm-hmm. behind the curtain, so to speak, that went on. And so that's, that's what the final impetus was that pushed me to actually do the writing. Okay. Um, I can tell you that I couldn't have written the book without uh, the internet. Allmusic.com, which right. has its faults, which has its faults, to be sure, um, uh, was, was a, a, a great assistant to me to uh-huh. uh, jar the memory and get things back going. It's kind of funny, though, that uh, when I started, I mean, there are definitely some things missing, and there were definitely things that I didn't remember until I read about them. But the funny part is that there's at least two albums that were on there when I started writing the book that now are gone. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't quite understand that. It's the, uh, the first Barbara Streisand album I did. Uh-huh. It was there when I started. And it's no longer there. Like it's just been wiped off of all music completely? Or your credit? My credit. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. And I can't remember the other one. Uh, there were two that when I went back to, you know, a, a year later, yeah. not there. Yeah. But anyway, that's, uh, that's what, how, how I got started on the whole thing. And uh, I, yeah, it was amazing, I have to tell you. Um, I mean, I've, I'm well aware that I've, you know, had a very blessed career uh, being being able to work in virtually every genre of music, uh, because and I because I do love all kinds of music, and in spite of the record business putting me in a box, which they love to do, mm-hmm. put people and producers and engineers and anybody in a box, uh, I still managed to uh, get around to doing a little bit of everything. Uh, but when I got halfway into the book, I actually <laughs> was going, wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. This is really this is really something. (laughs) So it was really cool to, you know, document uh, my career and and 
forced to think about it chronologically, so to speak, is how I started. Uh, so it was that part of it was really a wonderful experience. Before we look back on on some of that stuff and talk about your your experiences, uh, tell me about your situation now. So you live in Nashville. I don't know how long you've lived here for, um, but what brought you to this town? I mean, obviously it's a music town, but um, you've spent a lot of your career in LA. So I'm just wondering what brought you to Nashville and where you yeah. work now. Do you have a studio at your place or do you work at, at studios around town mostly? Okay, well, um, what happened was... Um, you know, I had a big studio in Los Angeles for 30-something years, and when the record business started going downhill, I wasn't going to, uh, I didn't want to have to compromise the thing and give it away. And I got very frustrated and uh, with, the, with the business and not being able to charge what it was worth. Yep. So uh, I sold it. The studio next door, Larrabee, uh, was only mix rooms, and they always, you know, Manny Marco in there was had become a good friend and he wanted, uh, he always said, if you ever want to sell. So uh, uh, maybe, I don't know if it was a rash decision or not, but I sold the studio. Mm-hmm. And um, when, immediate, what, what year was that? That's six years ago, seven years ago now. Okay, so pretty recently. And, yeah, and immediately I built a mix room in uh, Burbank uh, because I still love mixing. And um, I mean, I still love producing and recording too, but whatever. Um, so I, I built a mix room and that was great uh, for two and a half years until they sold the building and uh, the, the people wanted the whole thing and my, when my lease was up. So uh, then it was like, okay, now what? I'd lost my love affair with Los Angeles quite a while ago, but mm-hmm. uh, there was a record business and there was, I had a career and you know things were moving. And now that things were just kind of plopping along, uh, uh, I thought, let's told my wife, let's let's get out of here. And I'm from Phoenix, and I love it there. I love Scottsdale, but uh, I don't uh, know one single person, and there's not a whole lot of music. Right. And so that left Nashville, where uh, I know a lot of people, and mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of music. <laughs> and so here we came, and um, I decided when I I sold the studio, I kept all the equipment, but I I. I had decided I'm not going to build another studio uh, here. So I do have a mix room in my house. Okay. And then I record uh, primarily just at Ocean Way and Blackbird. Okay. Had you done a lot of work here in Nashville over the years, or did you mostly yeah. stick to L.A.? You had. No, okay. no, I, I, I'd done a mixing. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I produced one country record for a phenomenal talent named Mandy Barnett. Funny enough, once I got here, uh, I engineered and mixed didn't produce it but i engineered and mixed uh, one of the best albums i've been involved with in 15 years um with mandy it's uh it's uh, basically a a torch album it's the songs from the last billy holiday album yeah. and and uh, the uh, producer got sammy nestico this old old school arranger how yeah, old yeah. he was he was 95 when he did it <laughs> he just passed away a couple of months ago Amazing. Uh, and uh, I recorded at Ocean Way with a 55-piece orchestra live with her singing. And uh, it's an astounding album. You've done a lot of orchestral work like that over the years. I know you've done uh-huh. sound, like score, movie scores, and you probably did a lot of big orchestral things on various records through the 70s and 80s. Um, is that something you still enjoy Oh, I doing? love it. Yeah, the, I love the, it. the challenge of having that many people. Do you find it stressful? Quite the opposite. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I've said it for years. A um, couple of things that always come about from that. <laughs> One is if it, uh, 
if the guy with the with the stick, if the conductor knows what he's doing, yeah, and he's conducting pa- notes on a piece of paper that that gentleman or lady uh, uh, wrote, and she he or she knew what they were doing, yeah. and it's a good orchestra. It's much easier than recording a rhythm section. It really okay. is. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it almost um, becomes like a like one one instrument, it, I guess. Right? Exactly. That's what an orchestra is supposed to be. That's you know if it's if it's arranged uh, properly uh, and orchestrated properly. So yeah, it's uh, it, they're they're a lot of fun. I just I love it. So when you've and, got a uh, when, when you've got a great group of musicians in a in an awesome room like Ocean Way here, which is huge. Uh, that that a room is is gigantic. Um, how like how technically crazy is what you're doing? Like, are, are you dealing with subgroups of mics on different sections of instruments, and then the orchestra as a whole, or do you keep it pretty minimal? Or what's your approach to recording an orchestra? Okay, well, I, I, mine is really the classical approach. Uh, a, a, a system. It's called the Deca tree, even though it's arguable whether Deca really invented right. it, which is basically three omnidirectional microphones at some height, somewhere around 10 feet above the floor, mm-hmm. uh, uh, right in, in front of usually or on over the conductor. And those, uh, in, a, in a really good room, those three mics really will do the heavy lifting. If okay. it, there again, it has, it, the room has to be great. And, and the orchestration has to be great. And so then there will be other mics added. We usually, for film work, we usually put a pair of wides, which would be out farther to, to get more width if you wanted it, that are also up and kind of in front. Yeah. And then uh, there's spot mics on the various uh, different sections. sections. And then so when, when I, I usually start with, you know, the tree and maybe a little bit of the wides, and start listening to what I'm going to need. Usually, it's not the violins, some uh, or, the, or the string section. Usually, woodwinds will be the first, typically the first thing to go. They're usually behind the violins, the, the string section, and in front of the other horns and brass and stuff. They're usually the the, the first thing that might go. But then you just you know season to taste, kind of as uh, pulling pulling different things in to to balance it out that that the tree isn't capturing. Right, and and the are you? Th- are you kind of bringing it all together as you want to hear the finished product at the end? Like, do you, yes. is, you have to be aware of phasing issues at the time and, and just dealing, I guess with the decatry, you don't really run into that kind of problem or. Yeah. You know, I, um, call me crazy. My <laughs> wife does, my wife does, but not about this. Uh, I think way too much is made in, in some instances about phasing. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, phase can be your friend phase, you know, phase gives dimension for crying out loud. Uh, all you have to do is put a pair of speakers out of phase. You'll have a little too much to dimension. Yep. But but that idea, uh, you know, a lot of times, obviously, you don't want it. You, you know, you'd like, you know, for instance, the overhead mics, uh, the, the snare and the overhead mics on a drum kit to work work out well so that the snare has its focus and whatnot. But uh, not not a whole lot to worry about if all the mics have been checked for phase in an orchestra session it, you, that usually isn't a problem the okay. other thing I was going to tell you that when I'm on a, in a usually a sound stage which is which in LA which are much bigger rooms than Ocean Way but even Ocean Way uh, visitors will come and I'll say uh, that, you know, if they're in the control room and someone will say oh my gosh that's beautiful I said no no go outside for five minutes and listen out there 
and then come in and you'll see just how bad an engineer I really am. <laughs> because, because whatever we have to capture and pull it out of a, a few speakers is nothing like when, what you hear when you walk in the room with a full orchestra. How big are those Hollywood sound stages? They're big. Uh, I would say my two favorite are uh, Sony or the Barbara Streisand scoring stage, as they renamed it, and uh, Fox. And uh, I, I would say that Sony is uh, two and a half times Ocean Way. Oh, my and, God. Yeah, and Fox about three times. Is that tricky at all to reckon with, like as far as how much sound is floating around in that room? Like, do you have to be careful about that kind of thing, or does it just sound amazing? It, it's, all about, it's all about the sound of the room. At that point, you know, I yeah. can't emphasize that enough. That's that is that is the most important part of that because, and they're and they're different. Sony, for instance, is a is a I'll call it a drier room. It's not as ambient as Fox, let's say, um, uh, and it's a little uh, a, a teeny bit on the dark side. It's warm and rich is the best way to put it. It's a lovely, okay. lovely room, uh, and Fox is uh, is a, obviously the to the other side a little bit liver. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit clearer, actually, oh. on the tree, a little bit clearer. But uh, they, they both have their advantages. You can't go wrong with either one. Warner Brothers is the other stage that's left in L.A. And uh, it's, I don't know, it, I, I've just never gotten on well with it. I've done quite a few orchestras there, but I've, it's not, it wouldn't be my favorite. The other two are my favorite. Okay. We had another one for a while that Todd A.O. Had a, had a great, a really great stage. It was the biggest one. I always see the credits for Todd Ao in, in yeah. movies and stuff. Not anymore, though. It's 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 television now. It's, oh. it's a bunch of a bunch of uh, producers uh, for television shows. It's really sad. Um, but uh, you know, I I'll give you an idea of the size. If you know Ocean Way, the size of Ocean Way is that I had fifty five in there, and it was full. I yep. mean, it was full. Uh, Todd could take. Uh, Todd could take 85 with a 60-voice choir. <laughs> wow. That's bananas. So yeah. they were, those rooms were really built specifically for that purpose, right? Yes. And, and funny enough, uh, Sony, I'm not sure of the history if, if Sony has been changed very much. I don't think it has. Um, the, the others definitely have been rebuilt by, over the years for, for one reason or another. Warner Brothers, to get a... They had their control room in the beginning upstairs, a small control room, because yeah. back in the film days, they, you know, whatever, they, they had a film room that had the sprocketed machines going, so they built a big control room downstairs. And, um, and Fox is, was done a couple of times over, for some, in some cases, for acoustics. Yeah. What studio is Sony? Like, what did it used to be called? MGM. Oh, that was MGM. Okay. So, the, yeah. yeah, that's like all the... A lot of classic movies were done there. Yeah. Wow, absolutely. Cool. Uh, so you mentioned growing up in Phoenix. I, I wonder if we could just talk about your the path that you took. I don't know how uh, much of a musical background you had, whether you were growing up playing in bands or anything like that. Um, but I'm really curious about your path to getting started, really, in, in what you were doing like as an okay. engineer, both how you learned your craft, but also like how you technically ended up you know, working in studios in Los Angeles? I'm an only child. And uh, I w some, some kids that are lonely ch children seem to like it. I didn't care for it. Uh, I was lonely. And uh, so the radio became my friend. And back in those days, uh, 
the, uh, you know, there were no playlists for radio stations. In fact, you know, any radio station, you know, like the six to nine segment would be one DJ and, you know, uh, three to six, another and so on. And it literally was up to the DJ what he played. And some DJs, you know, they would get known for what, what they liked. And so, so one might be kind of, you know, a, a country-esque kind of thing or whatever. And one would be more jazz of the time, you know, Sinatra stuff and whatnot. Uh, but you'd, you'd hear all kinds of stuff. And so that was really good for me, getting a, a taste of that. I started in music in grade school on the trumpet, uh-huh. uh, moved to sax, ended up uh, on piano keyboards. And uh, when I was 13, my parents moved to California. And on my, my senior year, uh, I, I hadn't been playing music at all, really, with anyone. Uh, but I met some guys uh, that were starting a band. And I said, do you think an organ would fit in? And they said, let's try it. And so uh, we started the uh, LA Teens. You okay. remember them, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually did uh, pull it up on YouTube to listen to it. Oh, um, I thought the second, did you, the second single, the Dylan song, I thought that was a really good record. Were, were you guys like touring and like an active band at that point or was it no, just kind I, of No, we wouldn't okay. go that far, but, uh, you know, but what, 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 you know, we were just, yeah, we were touring. We did, uh, bowling alleys and, uh, <laughs> sock hops and, okay. uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, but we, we, we were writing music from the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, so we, we went to a, well, we thought it was a real studio. Uh, we went to a, a real studio and, and, and demoed some of our stuff. And mm-hmm. one of the mothers of the band knew somebody that knew somebody that was in the music business. And that was a guy named Gary Usher. Uh, Gary was, uh, he was friends with uh, the Wilson family, the Beach Boy family. In fact, he wanted to be a Beach Boy. Um, and uh, uh, he actually co-wrote In My Room in 409 with Brian. Oh, that's where I know that name from. Okay. Yeah. And so he, he was the, uh, someone in the music business, and uh, he got the demos and called us and said, let's have a meeting. And we came into the Capitol Tower, which is where his office at the time was. That's and, exciting. Yeah, oh, yeah. You must have been freaking out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, especially when he said, yeah, would you like to see the studios? And I went, oh my gosh, yes, because I, I should say that I was a huge, still am, a huge Beach Boy fan. I love vocal harmonies and so on. Sure. And I, and I loved what Brian did. And uh, so I said, oh, great. This is where Brian works? And he said, no, he works across town, a place called Western. But, uh, and he went down, we, you know, there's a, the famous ramp that goes down to the to the studios and uh, every time I'm at Capitol and I walk down that ramp, I think about that, that day in 1964 when we, I walked down that ramp for the first time. Amazing. And uh, we saw what a real studio was. Anyway, he, he liked what we had. He thought one of our songs was a hit and so he, we, we got our first record deal. And that, uh, that was really cool. We recorded at uh, Capitol Studio B and Gary brought in this uh, guitar player to augment the band, a guy named Richie Podler, who, you know, he came in and we saw that he was an incredible guitarist. And we made our first four singles. In those days, you know, you did four songs and they put out a single or two. And if it hit, you ran in and cut six more songs. If it didn't, as in our case, you got dropped. Okay. And so... Uh, <laughs> That's quick. Yeah. Uh, we, got, we got, they put out two singles, neither one took off. Although funny enough, on the first single... 
another aspect that used to happen in those days uh, was that the B-side, uh, the B-side actually took off because a DJ turned it over and it, it and it started getting play, and then another station finds out about it. That went on. That that went on. It never happened a tremendous amount, but it happened to more than you'd think in the in the '60s and mm-hmm. even into the middle late yeah, middle '70s. It could still happen. Anyway, when we got dropped, the that great guitar player Richie Podler had uh, told me that he was building a studio, and it was actually I did at the time I thought it was his first one. It turned out to be his third. Richie had quite a history. His first studio, he cut uh, "Let There Be Drums," Sandy Nelson. Okay. And and uh, his, his uh, uh, he he had quite a history. Anyway, I went to the studio, and he said. Um, I told him, yeah, we got dropped. And he said, oh, you guys were great. He said, I can get you a record deal. Go see this guy, Mike Curb. He's going to go places. Oh. Uh, do you think he was right about that or not? <laughs> I don't know. But, um, so I went to uh, Mike Curb's office, Sidewalk Productions, Curb, Sidewalk. Uh. And, uh, and uh, the office was he and his sister, Carol. That was it at, at that, then. And he, he signed us. Yeah, for Richie to produce us, and so we still to, had to, to to curb like curb was a label at that point. Yep. Okay. I had no idea that they went that far back. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, so we went to to Podlers, and here we had recorded at Capitol and Western. Yeah. Uh, uh, for with Gary Usher, uh, two of the best studios for sure at the time, uh, and still honestly, uh, in in L.A. and. Uh, we went into this funky little studio that Richie had and uh, went out and put down the first track, came in, and he hit play on the three track, or four track it was, hit play on the four track, and the sound that came out of the speakers just blew me away. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. And I, I saw, I could hear, feel so much more emotion <laughs> from our band than I'd ever heard, felt before. And I literally, on that moment, it was an aha moment, and I literally turned and pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me how to do this? He <laughs> said, no, I'm teaching Cooper. Get out there and do another take. <laughs> but that was, that was the moment that I knew I wanted to do, be able to control that emotion. So what, yeah. what had he done differently that you felt brought those elements out in your band? Okay. Uh, uh, well, of course, at the time, I had no idea. Right. But... You know, as I since, as I since learned and have done my best to practice and you know to try to get good at, it's a combination of so many things. He had, um, he had a great sounding room. I had, you know, the room actually gave you a, a sound uh, on the drums, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, he had uh, great mics and knew, knew which ones to use. I had a lot of great mics. Capital and Western had great mics too, uh, but. And they had great rooms. They, at Studio B back then, it, it's almost the same today. Studio A at Capitol is nothing like it was, but Studio B is still pretty similar. And Studio 3, where Brian Wilson did all his uh, work, and I did my, quote, hot organ solo, big close quote, uh, <laughs> on the B side that turned out to be the single. Uh, that, you know, that, that room is, again, very, very close. Um, but, you know, so, so it's just like, you know... It, well, every studio, every engineer walks into any and every studio. They all have, you know, mics and equipment and whatnot. And then, mm-hmm. it, and then, so the, the the big 
the big missing link, obviously, was Richie. Okay. <laughs> He's just, he, uh, as, I, as I wrote in the book, you know, I, as I got to know him, uh, I knew that uh, I would never be as good as he was. And uh, I think I'm right. Did you actually end up kind of interning for him or working for him? Or what was your, what was your path with him? Well, since he wouldn't, he, he, he wouldn't teach me, I went off on my uh, own and found a, a, a studio that I will call a very Mickey Mouse studio, <laughs> uh, which, because it was a very Mickey Mouse studio. It had egg cartons on the wall for sound absorption in the studio. He only had two condenser microphones. Yeah. The console was a mixer with no EQ and a Fisher Space Expanse Spring Reverb for echo, and it was two-track. And so I... Uh, I, uh, I I went in one day and said, if you know, if you let me, I'll sweep the floors. It'll do whatever you need if you let me. If you teach me how to use the equipment and and let me bring my band in, and uh, that's how it got started. And uh, down the road a little bit, the uh, owner bought a uh, homemade four track, and I said, how are we going to do the four track with a two channel? console and he brought in another mixer and set it on top and I went no 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 this is not gonna uh, I should say that within six, six months I was doing all the sessions because I was better than he was which wasn't saying much but he saw that so he had me doing all the sessions so I told him we're gonna have to get a console and uh, so he did some research and found this guy in San Diego named Toby Foster who was supposed to be good with electronics <laughs> Toby came up and uh said, you know, what's your budget? What do you need? And he said, well, I can build you something. It won't be professional quality audio. It'll be, you know, PA quality. It'll be a little noisy, but it should sound good. And so he built uh, a little, you know, I think it was 16 inputs and uh, four buses. And uh, that's how we moved on. Then That's so cool that that in, in those days you would, if you needed something like that, you would get it built. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> That continues on in a a little while. uh, That's, uh, what year is that? My gosh, that's 69. Uh, Oh, okay. uh, 11 11 years later, I built my own studio with Toby Foster. Oh, the same guy. And we built a console. No way. From the ground up, everything we built in the studio. Anyway, uh, so the, the owner comes in one day and says, we're moving to Hollywood. We were out in a suburb where my, I lived with my parents. And I, I, I said, I'm not ready to go to Hollywood. And he said, oh, no, you're ready. I wasn't ready, but whatever. Um, in the process, what happened with it was great is that Toby was the first person. He, he heard these little two tracks that I was doing. And he said, you know, you're really good at this. And uh, I said, yeah, right. And uh, he's, he, he was very positive about it. Well, he went on to get a, he moved to L.A. and got a job. Uh, doing maintenance and mastering at a studio in Glendale called Whitney. And I'm in college now. I've, I've spent two and a half years chasing my band. That that didn't work. So now uh, my Jewish physician father is uh, all over me to, you know, get a real job. And uh, so right. I'm, I'm, I go, I quit college for two and a half years. So I went back. I'm now in college. And every day after school, I would drive to Glendale to Whitney and t- start, Toby would just was very, very patient. And he would, I would just, you know, okay, now I'm sorry, what's a condenser mic again? And what's the dynamic? And he'd explain it and on and on. And 
he was just very patient. I'd ask question after question. And then he, uh, he finally he would say, okay, go home. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Had enough. <laughs> I got work to do. And because, you know, all of my aptitude in school was math and science. In fact, I started college in aerospace. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Because of that, where, the, where that met up with the music side of me, uh, just made engineering uh, a breeze to learn. It just was, it came very quickly. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm recording now in Hollywood, uh, just no good acts, but whatever. But like every day you're dealing with a new artist kind of thing? Well, it... not every day. Okay. Let's, let's hope a lot it of was downtime. Every, let's hope, yeah, let's hope it was every week. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot. But, uh, but I did do the first thing there that I ever heard on the radio, which I still to this day blows my mind. It was a, a Toyota commercial. Yeah. And why the... Why the com- the the, uh, the company would pick this little studio to to do it in? Because money is definitely no object in in that world. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I did. That was the first thing that ever went on the radio. Anyway, um, I, I tried to go and hang out with Richie Podler as much as I could, but he never would let me come in on sessions. The cl- he said the clients don't don't want that. But he had an engineer that worked there that also for him that did sessions named Tommy Coe, and he would let me come and hang out. And then Tommy started coming over to Hollywood. There, uh, Richie's studio was in uh, North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would come over and, and, and uh, hang out with me and encourage me also. And uh, about a year and a half down the road uh, of all that, Tommy said he's quitting the business and uh, going to move back to Florida. And uh, I said, wow, do you think Richie would hire me? And he said, well, he should. And so that began a two-month uh, trial of of Tommy pushing on him as much as he could, which wasn't probably that much, and me <laughs> going crazy and just pushing and pushing and pushing. And it is pretty amazing that here, that was less than three years later uh, from when I went in there and had that aha moment where I said, can you teach me to do this? And by now, he's, he is, uh, he's, he's got the hottest rock studio in L.A. He's recording Steppenwolf and Three Dog Night. So how, how is he going to hire this kid that didn't know anything a few years ago? But I just pushed and pushed until I, he, he finally broke. And uh, I said, okay, what do we do now? And he said, well, there's a demo tomorrow morning. Come in and do that. And uh, so I went in and did the demo. I called him that afternoon and said, uh, how'd I do? And they said, well, they said you were fine. And, okay, now what? Well, come <laughs> tomorrow morning. There's another demo. Okay. So I went in. These were publishing demos where you would go in and quickly record four or five songs with a rhythm section. They'd do a quick vocal. The, art, the writer would do a quick vocal and you'd do a very quick mix. And then Like, like take, two or three hours top to bottom yeah, kind of three, thing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Three hours at the most. That's trial by fire, man. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> the heat gets turned up in a minute. So I called after the second one and I said, Okay, well, what, what, what did they say? He said, yeah, they said you were great also. Oh, okay, what now? He said, okay, come tomorrow night, and you can record a track with Three Dog Night. I, huh? <laughs> huh? And you, you passed the audition. Uh, well, but, but that was his client, and uh, that, that right. was his act. And he, the Steppenwolf and Three Dog Night at that time started, both started out being produced by a guy named Gabriel Meckler, who was obviously Richie's biggest client. And if anyone can tell me why you would turn over your biggest client and a group that had already had a, a big hit and was on their way to being one of the biggest bands in the country, you're going to turn this over to a young kid. They, all they could do, if I fell on my face, 
he would look like an idiot. He was actually suggesting that he not be there and you just take That's the session. That's correct. Oh, wow. You do it. <laughs> okay. So I went in and I cut a, a song with Three Dog Night and uh, nervous as I could be, but they were all the guy. The singers were great. The band was great. The yeah, Gabriel a good was band. great. Everybody was good to me. And, you know. What was the song? Uh, uh, the first one, it wasn't a hit. It was A Change Is Gonna Come. Okay. So I, I got through that that night. I called Richie the next morning. I said, did you talk to Gabriel? Yeah. What did he say? He said, you were great. Okay. He said, come back tonight. Keep going. There again. Why wouldn't Richie say, yeah, you were great, but I'm going to take over now again. But no, he let me go back in. It makes was he, no sense. Was he like burnt out or something? No, like, no. Huh. I, okay. Uh, I asked him, I asked him 10 years later. Why did you do that? And he, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I asked him 20 years later, this seriously, I, I, another time, because I still ha, you know, try to keep up with Richie. I said, why would you do that? And he said, the only, thing, the only thing I can figure is that I wanted to show the band how much they needed me. And ultimately, <laughs> that is exactly what happened. So the second night, I cut uh, a song called Circle for a Landing. And uh, that was great. Called Richie the next morning. Yep, come back tonight. Okay. Back in I went. And uh, an hour into the session, I got in trouble. They wanted something on the guitar that Richie had probably done, because he's, as yeah. I said, a sensational guitarist. They wanted some kind of effect on the guitar. And uh, it, things were getting a little testy. So I called Richie and said, you better come down here. And so he came down and took over. Yeah. And that, that ended my tracking. Uh, oh. But he did let me do, I did some overdubs and I hung out as much as I possibly could to, there again as where I'm watching Richie at work. So for those kind of s sessions, would they, um, would they mix them right then and there as well? Or was the mixing? Oh, no, old? no, this, this was eight track by now. And so okay. there, there was a lot of work to be done. And, and they were working on an album, like they had the studio locked out. It wasn't like they were coming in and setting up every day. No, was... actually in the, in those days they would do the setup. He would do the setup to maximize the studio. Uh, that like those demos that I did in the morning, they were before a, oh my God. a three dog night session two days earlier. You know, so three dog night would be in. They'd track, they'd tear down. The demo would come in, set up, and then three dog night would come back and reset. Correct. Up. Wow. Correct. <laughs> wow, that's and crazy. So I, uh, Richie hired me, and I started doing sessions that you know that not just demos, but uh, some other sessions and whatnot. And uh, um, until. He took over producing both acts. Mm -hmm. Then I, I went to him and I said, you know, I, all, I, all I really want to do is produce records anyway. Now that you're slamming, you know, you're going to get offered all kinds of stuff. Why don't we close the studio, make it a production studio. You can, uh, you know, find me an act, you know, uh, get my career going, take a piece of it, you know, own them or whatever and get me going. He said, that's a great idea. Oh. And he had already been offered a couple of things, so he gave me a couple to listen to, and I picked one I liked, and we went in and cut a track, and uh, I was on my way. It was se seemingly it was great. Who was that? that uh, never, never happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> never happened. A group called the Realm. <laughs> okay. Um, and that was that was great until Richie started a Steppenwolf album, and he decided he didn't want to tear down. He wanted to leave it. I and understand. So, and and so all of a sudden now, you know, it went on. He said, it'll just be a it'll just be a few days, which turned into a week, which turned into a few weeks. And the only way I got paid was if I was in there working for the production company. And you could so do I it. had I couldn't do it. So I had to go independent and uh out out the door I went. 
So what did, what did that look like at that time? Like, so you're an independent engineer, you've got some stuff under your belt, but not a ton at that point. You've mostly like small acts. Uh, how hard was that for you to drum up work at that point? Well, fortunately, fortunately, I, uh, I took, because it was closed, Richie didn't care anymore. I took all the clients that I, which were really two main ones uh, that, that I had worked with. I took them and that's how I sort of got started you know, got it going. And where did he work? The first studio I worked in was the original, no longer there, Larrabee in West Hollywood. Okay. Um, it was actually built for Jerry Goffin, the, f- oh, yeah. the famous songwriter. And that was a real learning lesson because as we talked about earlier, you know, when you said why, uh, what about the studio? And, and you start to talk about all the good things that Richie had. Well, now I'm out on my own and this studio looked like a million dollars. I mean, it was just yeah. gorgeous and a brand new console and all of this and th- these new JBL speakers and uh, <laughs> all, all these things that, you know, that should make it great. Instead, I was getting, not getting good results at all. It was just, I was so frustrated. It, it drove me crazy. It was actually one of the clients that I worked with uh, back then, Bob Todd, ultimately got a job as an A&R man at Mercury Records. And uh, he was one of those producers that I had kind of helped along, like Richie helped along Gabriel and and other people he worked with. And so Bob said, you know, if you find anything you want to produce, do it. You know, let me hear it. I'll sign it. And so I found a a black gospel group that I thought were great. And I took him to him and he said, "Okay." we got four songs. I went in. It was the first time anyone paid me to go in and produce something. Mm -hmm. What happened was when I mixed it, uh, I ended up mixing it at Whitney, where Toby was still working. Yeah. And uh, I I went into the mastering room where he was and I was horribly frustrated. I said, I, it just, I can't get things to sound right. I, I wasn't happy in the recording. I'm less happy in the mixing. I don't know what to do. And he said, let me hear it. And he listened to it and he said, you know, 99% of the people are not going to know the difference. And in those days, you know, there was a case to be made because a lot of people, stereo was one speaker in the living room and one speaker in the bedroom. Right. Of, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I said, yeah, you know, I guess you're right. So I finished it, I, I mastered it. Uh, a week later, Mercury called and said, come and get a test pressing to approve. So I drove down, picked up the test pressing, ran home, put it on my little KLH audio system at home, put the needle on, on the, the single. And when it got to the, to the fifth bar of the solo, oh, sorry, of the co- first chorus, I just, my shoulders sank and I picked up the needle and I went, I know the difference. And that was my second aha moment uh. where, where I, it's like I, right then uh, I knew that I was going to do whatever it took to master this craft. And uh, that, that's when I started on what I, I call my graduate work, uh, uh, which Doug Sachs was a huge help. Doug Sachs, the famous mastering engineer, um, world famous, uh, uh, no longer with us, sadly. He helped me a tremendous amount. What kinds of things were you, did you feel like you were missing in the, in the overall picture? Well, I, I've, you know, Doug helped me learn that I was being fooled by the monitoring system. Richie's monitoring system was, it turned out to be very accurate. And so here I would mix at Larrabee and it sounded great at Larrabee. But when I went, you went to Doug Sachs to master it, 
it, he said, this doesn't sound very good. You know, you're, you're <laughs> it's honest. He said, yeah, no, he, he was always extremely honest with, with lots of clients, but especially me. And so he showed me, he said, you're being fooled by the monitors. You're not hearing bass correctly. I can tell. Oh. So, you know, monitoring system. And then, um, you know, with his friendship, he was a, a classically trained trumpet player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, he, he, you know, he started, I was never, I was never way into classical music. Um, and he started showing me things like uh, he sh- uh, recordings of orchestras and what a difference the hall made, the acoustics for an yep. orchestra. Well, it, it's, it's not exactly much different in a recording studio, you know, a room with really good acoustics, depending on what, take a drum set, for instance, uh, you know, if you put it in a dead box, you're going to get a dead box sound. And, uh, and, uh, but you put it in a room that, that has something going on, uh, you know, that even, even forget room mics, just the overhead mics are going to have air and, and life in them. Uh, in fact, the reason that, in 1980, I would build a studio. The only reason I wanted to build a studio is that all the studios that I worked in and that were built in the 70s were built as dead boxes. Right. Uh, because as multitrack came out, isolation became the word of the day. You had to have be, be able to be isolated. Uh, Nashville took a different approach. They just put in a whole bunch of isolation rooms. Mm-hmm. But the studios, you know, one of the studios I worked in there was uh, that was built in 75 in LA that I did a lot of work in was called uh, Davlin. And it was a big room, uh, a nice big room, but uh, I, I didn't realize it was dead. And I didn't realize, you know, they, and all of a sudden, this is when all of these things start coming together for me that, you know, maybe that's why the drums don't sound as good there. Mm. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and then, and then microphones, Toby had turned me on to tube microphones mm-hmm. early on. So like 1971, I started buying, uh, my, I started with my favorite microphone, the Telefunken 251. I started buying those and, and then ultimately others, M49s. By the way, what are you talking into? An M49. <laughs> That's, I know hey, that. hey, what did an, what did an M49 cost in 1970? You don't want to know. Uh, <laughs> let's put it, do you know what a 251 goes for today? Uh, over, 12 to 20 grand. 20 and up now. Okay, yeah. For great ones, 20 and up. Yeah. I never, I paid 400 and $500 for mine. <laughs> in fact, in 1980, before I, while a studio was being built, I bought, my, uh, I, I think, my last pair, numbers eight and nine, and I paid $3,000 for two mics, and I bitched about it for six months. Oh I never God. paid $1,500 for a microphone. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, the M49s, uh, I, I got onto, into M49s a little bit later, so the price was about the same. They were about, uh, they, I mean, obviously, they, they haven't gone as high, but still a phenomenal microphone. Just, yeah. Uh, n- and and one of many many of the top vocalists' uh, favorite microphones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Barbara right. Streisand has her own. Huey Lewis has his own. Do you still have your microphone collection, or have you thinned it out over the years? I've sold some of it since I sold the studio. Yeah. I, I've still got a, a decent amount. Uh, I wonder if we could talk about some of the specific classic records that you've worked on, and and just how you know a, a few things about them and how they came to be for you. Um, one of the early ones, I don't know what, what you picture as like the first one that was sort of a big record, but I mean, that Ringo one stands out as that was always actually like as a kid, that record was one of my favorite records. And, uh, 
you know, I, I didn't even really realize that you were involved in it until until recently. But um, maybe you could talk about how that came about and, um, you know, how you were worked. Uh, I think Richard Perry was the producer on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, what was that session like? Nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, okay. So what happened was I did a small stint at CBS. In fact, it's a very important stint because it's the reason I'm not a lawyer. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my dad, you know, wanting me to get a real job, he, uh, um, if I wasn't going to be a doctor, I was going to be a lawyer. And so that's the pressure I was under. So I was in college. And when I, when I started at Podlers, I, I went ahead and tried law school. I got into law school and it just, I, I, I got the grades back on uh, the second semester was starting and they were all C's and a B. I'd been faking it and I, because I couldn't do the, all the reading with, I, I was doing sessions and going to class. It, so I was sessions, skipping class man. and not doing the reading and it was rough. So I'd quit two and a half years of college to chase the band. I said, I, I quit in the second January of that year. I quit and I said, I'll give myself a year and a half. And if it doesn't work, I'll go and get the law degree, shut my parents up and go back and try music one more time. And I was, it was a year and some, a couple months had passed and it was, I was just about ready. I was sitting at Larrabee, just about ready to re-enroll in law school. And um, uh, one of my clients that I'd worked with, a guy named Joel Sill, he, he got a deal with Columbia as a, uh, a production uh, publishing deal. And he told Clive about me and I'm sitting there. So I'm sitting there at Clive Larrabee. Davis. Yeah, Clive Davis. And I'm sitting at Larrabee mixing and the phone rings and the girl says, uh, Clive Davis is on the phone for you. And I went, huh? <laughs> and I picked up the phone and said, hello. Uh, Hi, Bill, Clive Davis. How are you? I'm fine. Um, Joel, Joel tells me you're a very talented musician and uh, engineer. What do you want to do with your life? I said, I, I think I'm going to go back to law school. Went, no, you don't want to go to law school. If you've if, if you've That's got the music, parental advice you needed, <laughs> he said, I went to law school, but if you've got music in your blood, you're, you're going to, that's what you're going to do. And I said, well, I'd love to, but, and he said, all right. And he got rid of the, but, so that was the, th that was that. Uh, and funny enough that Columbia had one of the craziest practices at the time, they didn't, they had one, they had, you know, three big studios, two mixing rooms, three mastering rooms. They had one second engineer. How? Because it, the, all the engineers would second. If you weren't mixing or recording, they made you a second. It was okay. so one Just day. Just like you, a revolving kind of thing. Yeah, it's ridiculous because, you know, the good engineers, you know, had to hate it. They tried to avoid the better engineers, but they couldn't because you had to keep, you know, keep rotating. So one day you'd be recording some big act and the next, next week you were assisting, assisting. on a demo. <laughs> you know, it was just <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, uh, I got thrown in to assist on Barbara Streisand with Richard Perry producing. And this is, this is just by Clive Davis referring you into the session, basically? Well, he didn't refer me to the session. He gave me the shot to produce there, which is okay. what I did. Yeah. And, uh, but I got thrown in on this session uh, as a second. And then uh, uh, about f less than a week into it, R Richard decided to, uh, he fired the engineer and said, you engineer. Uh, okay, cool. so I started. So that's where I started, and I ended up finishing that album. That was the second album that Richard did with her, Barbara Jones Streisand. Did you mix that record too? Uh, parts of it, not all of it. It was it was okay. half 
or two thirds done. I remixed one of the songs and I mixed a couple more. Um, I don't remember exactly how many, um, but that that that's how Richard and I got together. He went off to England to do Nielsen, and nice. uh, came back, and then he went off to England and did Carly Simon. Now the funny thing is, you, uh, I, if you talk about the record business pigeonholing you, because I came out of American, and Richard knew that, Richard Perry knew that, he, he thought of me as kind of a rockish guy. And, and her yeah. album was, you know, for Barbara, that was the most rock album she ever made. He even put the, there was a girl group at the time called Fanny, and they cut one of the tracks, I cut one of the tracks with them. Anyway, he thought of me as a rock guy. So he called me from England and he said, I've just finished this album with Carly Simon, and there's two songs that are rock songs that I'm not gonna mix here in England. I want you to mix them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I said, oh, okay. So he comes back and I mixed the first one and then I mixed the second one. And then Richard thought, well, why don't you try a remix on this one? And I tried that. And then he said, well, why don't you try a remix on the single? You're so vain. And I tried that. I ended up remixing the whole album. And that also was the, my first Grammy nomination for Best Engineered Album. Just tell me a bit about the, the mix process. Were you, um, were you working by yourself? Yeah. Uh, was it, um, like, how quickly were you working in those days? Like, what was the... What was the um, length of the mix on that whole record? Well, <laughs> uh, Richard, Richard is uh, extremely fastidious, and yeah. uh, and you know he he he's looking for I, I'll say looking for perfection. Although sometimes it didn't look like he he knew what he was looking for. Sort of almost like I'm looking for something. I know it when I'll find it, kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, uh, mixing with Richard was always a bit challenging from that regard. Okay. And back then, especially, and for some time, I always mixed uh, for performance. You know, the whole reason that live recordings and whatnot were so good, easy for me is that that's, you know, I love actual manipulating and mixing at the time, you know, uh, live in the moment. And uh, Richard was fine with that, but it's just, then we would do another one and another one and another one. And did I mention yet another one? So I don't remember, you know, I think... I think he tried to do a song a day, which, you know, I think in 70, that's 72, I think. Yeah. You know, most people were probably still doing two songs a day. Then he called me up after that album took off. He he called me up and and said, and I knew that he had met um, Ringo when he was doing Nielsen in England. Um, Nielsen and Ringo were good friends. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to do an album with Ringo. And I said, oh, wow. He said, yeah, we're going to do it in L.A., so I want you to do it. And I went, great. 
And uh, so it, that's where it's, and then he said, and Ringo wants to have Jim Keltner play drums. And I went, on Ringo's record? And he said, no, 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 <laughs> he's going to play also. He just wants to play with Jim Keltner. I said, oh, cool. Did you know who Keltner was at that point? Yes, only okay. because Richard used him on oh, things. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Not, I, don't, I don't think he's on Carly's album, though, but Richard, yeah, I, I learned about him from, through Richard for sure. Yeah. Talk about what was that like. I know the day before, we, the night before we started, I go in to set up and here's road cases that say Ringo Starr. <laughs> and, uh, so crazy. Yeah. And uh, 22-year-old Bill is like, oh, okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> and I remember as I walked up to the drums, going, uh, well, this is probably not the same kit that the, all the Beatle records were done on, you know, but it's still Ringo Starr's drum kit. So were there two full kits set up, a Ringo kit and a Keltner kit? Yep. And do they play, are, are there two drummers on the whole record? Not the whole record, but now that you're, now that you're an adult, go back and listen to it and you'll, <laughs> yeah, hear, I will. you'll hear two drums. How did you deal with that as an engineer? Like, what was your approach with two drummers? Because that wasn't like a super common thing back then. No, it was the first time I'd ever done it, that's for sure. Uh, I, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I mic'd them up and put them on tracks, you know, that's all yeah, we yeah. could do. And, and it was 16 track, by the way. So not a lot of okay. tracks. Yeah. A couple of days later, George came over and he hopped in and listened to the couple of tracks we'd gotten. And then he got involved and we started doing some more tracks with him. And then came that, the, the fateful night when, uh, Richard said, by the way, John Lennon's coming tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> by the way, yeah, by the way. And uh, so, so you're, you're pre presiding over a full fledged Beatles reunion at this point. Well, three out of four. And three it's out of four. And it's really sad uh, because those darn drugs, because Paul McCartney, mm. they look, the, the, the way I always looked at that album is that the, the, the other guys in the band gave him a leg up. They knew where their careers were going to go, but let's, let's give Ringo a leg up here, get him going. And so, Paul wanted to be involved, but he had had a, a slight problem with drugs and was not allowed in the country. You know, he uh. was banned from coming to America for a while. So if if that hadn't happened, if he would have come over, I, I, there would have been a reunion, I have no doubt, because the, the bad blood that once existed had was calmed down plenty enough. Mm -hmm. And it would have, it, you know. But that oh, night man. that I had three of the four, which was the only time that the three of the three of the four ever played together again, uh, it was the first time since the, the breakup and it was the last time three would, would play together. And then we went to England to record, Paul wrote a song. We went to England and recorded it right. with, with, uh, a Paul, uh, with him, he and his wife, a song they had written. When you record somebody like George Harrison, who has like, you know, such a kind of, uh, iconic sound and did you have to, like, was that a stressful experience as an engineer or was it just kind of like recording any other guitar player? You just put a, a mic of your preference in front of an amp and go for it? Or was that like a thing that you had to really focus on with him? No, no focus. Because no focus. <laughs> primarily because, first of all, because George was an incredibly sweet man, just uh -huh. off the top, just incredibly sweet. Number two, he's not, uh, you know, if, I don't know who to pick up. If he was like a, a John Mayer or something, he, in other words, his guitar parts were extremely thought out yeah, and, and worked over. Did he come in with that done, or was that a process that you sat through while he like worked? The it process. All it was a process. Okay. 
Yeah. And, and if there's anything that, you know, I love moving fast. I love working fast. I like getting my adrenaline going. I love, you know, when you're in the cre creative moment and nothing better, one of the saddest things that isn't enough of anymore, I'm happy to say there's a lot more here in Nashville than L.A., is live sessions with people interacting yeah. with each other. Uh, there's nothing better than that for me is that, a, you know, pooling a bunch of creative minds together and whatnot. As a result, there's nothing worse than babysitting a fader for hour on hours on end. <laughs> so in spite of the fact that some of the results might have been really good, uh, getting there was boring as heck sometimes. So Yeah, yeah. I get as you. opposed I get you. to as opposed to John Lennon, who went that night he came in, uh, it was so interesting so interesting back up a second, it was so interesting because the first couple of nights when it was just Ringo. Uh, you know, he, Ringo is Ringo. He's always going to be him. And he's just, you know, to, to have seen him at all is to know him. That's, that's who he is. And just, okay. yeah, lovely. And happy go lucky. Happy go lucky. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, George comes in and George kind of, he didn't take over, but he started talking more and more. And as a result, Ringo would talk less, or, you know, or listen to what George had to say. John yeah. comes in and the two of them are just laser focused on John. It's just, <laughs> and you knew right away, whatever John wants is what it's going to be. There was and, an, there was a hierarchy there. Yeah. And, and yeah. when the, John will know when the take is done period. And this was a song that he had actually written for himself and he redid the lyrics a little bit. I'm the greatest, uh, which right. was tongue in cheek the first time around for him. And then the change lyrics was still tongue in cheek in a different way for ring. But he, uh, uh, the, on that session, when we got the take, uh, he had a, a, uh, rough vocal for Ringo to learn the melody and stuff. Yeah. And there, there came a time on the, after we had the, Ringo's vocal when we needed that track and Richard said okay go over Lennon's track and I had the presence of mind to put it down on uh, the rough mix down on tape yeah. and I put that away and kept it until I guess it was in the late 90s there was a John Lennon anthology and they called me to ask about certain things and I said oh I've got something in the in a drawer that you're gonna really like <laughs> and and I gave them the that that take which went on their anthology and so that scene was pretty crazy like there you know it was Ringo and John and George but also like Klaus Wurman was there I think and he and, he played bass and, he played bass on the whole album the whole thing and uh, he's great and the and Keltner like that was really the start of that amazing seventies rock uh, rhythm section scene I I think you know that Ringo record kind of kicked things off and was it was it like a real scene as far as like people coming and going constantly or <laughs> well it was? if if you if do you remember the album cover yeah I do very well that's but it was like a, circ a circus party well now you have to exactly now you go back and look and you see the chubby guy to the right of center holding a reel of two inch tape that's me Really? <laughs> yeah. But but the reason that album cover was so apropos was because it was a circus. That was that was the hardest thing of doing that album is that it became, you know, all kinds of people were coming down to hang out. And right. if there, you know, normally I learned I had already learned that when you're in a control room and the control room starts talking, you don't turn up your monitor cuz they're just going to talk louder. So to, normally what I would do is turn the monitor down and say, "Excuse me, Guys, can we hold it down while I'm working? But in that group of people, I wasn't about to do that. So I just, I suffered through it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, that part wasn't, wasn't a whole lot of fun. But it was a successful record, relatively speaking, and, and, it was, and a fantastic sounding one. Um, yeah, it was, uh, 
Yeah, it was platinum for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then the second one, we did one uh, a year and a half or something later. Uh, yeah. That one, uh, there wasn't quite, you know, I don't think we got Paul at all on that. Uh, but John did a lot more, on the other mm -hmm. hand. Uh, George was off making a record, so he didn't do as much. Uh, but I, I got to spend a lot more time watching John Lennon. What was he like in the studio? Like, did did you interact with him a lot, or was he kind well, of a loner, or what you know, was his vibe? I, I used I used to always say, and, and I finally realized you shouldn't say that because I don't like I don't like what that I've been saying it. I used to say most talented man I've ever been in a control room with, but I, I don't like that because I I don't like putting Paul McCartney second. I really don't. I look at it that what I would say is. I look at it that those two, much like Henley and Fry and the Eagles, you got the more sardonic, uh, morose, darker character and the more happy-go-lucky, melodic kind of character. And, uh, you know, the one that's the lyrics will go down that, will want to go a little sardonic or a little darker and that kind of, And you put the two together and look what you get. <laughs> a string of hits and both of those bands, you know, of, of yeah. songs, it's just ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, Paul was an absolute joy to work with, you know, Lennon, what was he like to work with? Well, not a lot of eye contact. His eyes are constantly flitting. He's constantly thinking and moving just constant, not, never mm. stops. Yeah. But he, but what else didn't stop is he would open his mouth and something incredible would come out. He'd be just listening to something and he'd throw something out like a background part. And, you know, Richard said, whoa, whoa. and we stop what we're doing, set up a vocal mic quick and go out and do that kind of thing. You know, I mean, that yeah, kind of I thing bet he had a, I bet he had a few of those up his sleeve. Yeah, he just, <laughs> just, just like, you know, amazing popcorn. And as a guitar player, he always seemed to me like he was the opposite of George, where it was just like basically the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. And it was raw and sometimes per, like far from perfect. Was he like that when you worked with him too? Yes, but he didn't play. I don't think he played anything but acoustic guitar on the, on both oh, okay. of those records, as far as I remember. Okay. Wow. What an experience, man. That's so cool. I mean, another one that comes to mind, obviously, because it gave you such notoriety, was the couple of records you did with Steely Dan. I don't know if you're sick of talking about those records because they've, they've probably come up in every interview you've done. But I'm not. I'm actually not the biggest Steely Dan fan in the world. I think those records sound amazing. But I, what I am curious about with, especially with Asia, because I think was that the first one that you did yes. with them, or had you worked with them before? No. Um, that album just like the whole scope of it just seems so crazy to me, like with so many engineers. And I guess there was just one, the one producer, but it seems like there was a bunch of engineers and the amount of time that it seems to have taken is staggering to me. And I just wondered like, um, you know, we don't need to dwell on those records because okay. as you say, you've talked about them a million times, but what does working on a record for a year look, look like? Okay. <clears throat> Here's the deal. I, I, I only did the tracking sessions and they were nothing like what I expected. Uh, I had Michael Omardian, uh, who played on previous records, and uh, Jeff Percaro, who had, by then had become a, a friend, later to become a really, really good friend, um, had told me about what recording with Steely Dan was like, you know. And so I was, I was prepared for, okay, here we go, you know, a couple of whatever it takes, you know, however long. But the sessions were amazingly short, Oh. focused and I, I, nothing like I expected. And I mean, we would, we often got two songs a day. Wow. No, well, I shouldn't say often, but several times we got two songs a day. We, you know, for instance, 
um, Steve Gadd. We had Steve Gadd for two days. We cut four tracks. Only one made the album. That, uh, that's the only album I actually worked on. My name is on Gaucho because they took one of the Gadd tracks and put it on the album. Oh, In fact, okay, when, yeah. I, when I went up for the Grammy with Elliot I, Shiner, I said, can I talk first? And he said, sure. And I said, I said, I'm really along for the ride on this one. It, and Elliot, Elliot reaches into the mic and says, no, no, if we didn't have that song from Asia, we'd still be working on the record. <laughs> and uh, if you remind me, I'll come back to talking about Gaucho because I think that's just an interesting point. But the sessions were, they couldn't have been easier and better. So how I, did it drag on to be a year-long record? Okay, I, I couldn't tell you because I wasn't there. At the end of the tracking dates... Yeah. They, the guys came to me and said, we'd like you to mix this. And I said, oh, guys, I don't, I don't know that that'll work. And what do you mean? I said, well, I think my style of mixing is going to be very different from yours. Mm -hmm. And they said, really? Well, will you try it? I said, of course, I'd be glad to. So six months later, when they had the first song done, <laughs> which, oh my God. which, by the way, wasn't done, it was a different, it's different than the final record. It was Josie, when Josie comes home, uh, which is Keltner playing drums. They brought it to me and I went in the studio and I did what I like to do, which like I said, I like to mix for performance. And so I could tell, and because I'd already heard, I knew what, what, what it was gonna be like. I was, I, and I was excited to try it because I thought, at first I thought I expected something so different in the tracking. This, all mm -hmm. this meticulous nonsense in the tracking, yeah. and I didn't have it. Maybe wow. they've lightened up for mixing, but no. <laughs> and so when I had the mix where I liked it, they came over and they listened. They go, wow, that's really cool. What about if we try this? And I went, okay, and we tried this. And then, yeah, yeah well, what, now let's try that. You know, oh, well, let's try that without this. And then it began. And it was like on and on. And I'm just, I'm crumbling. Oh. I'm going down. You know, it's just not going to work for me. And so at the end of the day, I said, see, guys, I'm, you know, this is just, I, you know, I'm just not that patient a person. And this just, you know, and I understand. And they went off and they worked with Elliot, who did a masterful job. And um, uh, like that, I t tell you a cute story that Elliot said that automation was designed for a band like that. Right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I was not on a con. I, I, it took me a while to learn moving faders, not the process, but to, to let, I wasn't going to let it help me. I, no, I don't mm -hmm. want you to help me. You know, and I finally took me a while, but I finally got it. And especially in the beginning, because the first moving fader automation system was called NECAM, built by Neve. Yeah. And it was in a small word, horrible. Glitchy as shit, right? <laughs> oh my, and inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just, it just wasn't good. And, and yeah. gruff, you know, it wasn't smooth and everything and everything. Well, Elliot said that on, one, on a mix one time, uh, I, I'm not sure if it was Donald or Walter, wouldn't want to, but one of them said, on this pass, and of course that's the whole point, because now they get to make all the changes and, and they believe that it's coming back the same. And if you believe it, it's true. But mm -hmm. you know, if anyone that ever worked on NECAM, it's coming back close, very close. But it's not coming back the same. But whatever, right. close enough. But one of them said to Elliot, okay, on this pass, I want you to put your finger on this fader and just don't move it. Just think about moving it. And let's record that pass. <laughs> now, that tells you everything you need to know. No wonder, no wonder it took a year. <laughs> yeah. That, that, I mean, I don't know what to say. But obviously, the overdub process 
was, you know, I mean, just just ask Jay Graydon about the guitar solo on Peg, you know, how many guitar players he replaced. He'll be glad to tell you. Yeah, that was like many, many, many different guitar players, right? On that yeah, record. I don't know how yeah. many, but... Yeah, and were you that were you involved in that whole process? Nothing. Do you, no, no. Okay. They they said to me that day when we quit, they said we're going to go off and do overdubs. It'll take a while, but when yeah. we're done, we'd like you to mix it. And that, that's so the basic tracking for a record like that was it done all in one room, and were, was there a live element to um, it? Well, the yes, the, the cool. Now there's some things, some things they replaced. I'm sure, yeah. I know. But funny enough, when we talk about those. The, the things that end up on the internet, uh, I think they're on there now. Uh, but I found out several years ago, uh, I talked to the second engineer at the time. Turns out when everyone went home, he made copies of the basic tracks. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, could I please have those? And uh, <laughs> so I got them. But now they're online, I think. I don't know. Oh, if, yeah, if, yeah. Yeah, how, how that, that stuff's showing up now, yeah. too, right? Yeah. Um, so, and you can see how close... You know, I mean, the, 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 the genesis of every one of those songs is there. They, whatever they did, you know, they didn't make anything worse. They didn't reinvent anything, uh-huh. with the exception of Peg, which they recut in New York. Oh, okay. After yeah. the fact. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, so evidently, the, you know, that, the overdub process, they were right back to doing oh, what man. they did. But as I mentioned, to go on to Gaucho, the funny thing is, here they, f- for whatever reason... They they did the whole this whole I mean they were they were practically union sessions I mean we started at two o'clock and yeah. and went you know till nine and maybe if we needed to go overtime we went a little overtime but they were all union musicians so it was going to be a union sessions and it was it was just nothing like what you know what right. I was expecting and oh, that's um, cool. and and the results were phenomenal right yeah so. What do you do to follow up an album like Asia, which was, for my, in my humble opinion, a, a good step above, above everything they had done? How do you follow that up? Um, change everything. <laughs> so they go to New York, and they went, they went crazier than they ever have about g- getting drums. I mean, I'm, I'm a wannabe drummer myself, and I love drums. I've, I've, I spent a lot of time when I was learning, figuring out how to get a good drum sound. Uh, I, I look at it as they're the backbone of most popular music, so we want a strong backbone and all that. Uh, and when Gary called me for the Asia sessions, he said, by the way, one thing you need to know, yeah, it's going to be a revolving door of drummers. I went, oh, really? Yeah, we got, you know, we got quite a few. I think we ended up with five, five or six drummers. Um, and so that now they go for the next album, and uh, they're, they're going crazy. Jeff Picaro, they call, that's one of the other things. So, so many things don't make sense. Jeff had played on the two previous albums. They loved yeah. Jeff's playing. Yeah. Why, did, why wasn't he in that revolving door? Oh, I he wish, wasn't even on the record at all? No. Wow. It, it, so I, it was I, like... Keltner and I think Bernard Purdy, right? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. You have to read the credits. I can't remember, but now all now. <laughs> um, they called Jeff and he went to to New York to work on it. And he came back and I said, "So how are they doing?" He said, "I couldn't tell you." He said, "I played the song, <laughs> I played the song over and over and over with one rhythm section, and then another rhythm section, and then a third oh rhythm God. section, and all they're looking for is the drum track." Wow. And what that drove them to this what I, I would like to call insanity. Um, yeah, sounds a, like it. A little, bit, a little bit over the top was 
getting their, they have, they had a house engineer, the guy that had been with them, you know, f- for a lot of it, to uh, build a uh, drum computer that they would, that was, that was the first, uh, supposedly, I think it was the first time, you know, pr- samples of drums were put in a computer and yep. they could, they could pre drum machine. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and do it that way. Uh, I really loved the Bee Gees. Um, but never got to work with, I'll, I worked with the three, the three of them individually on, on solo albums. And I was listening to a song on Barry's solo album that was great. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was the closest I'll ever get to a Bee Gees song. It sounded like the Bee Gees. But th- they got, in their later years, they got a little bit crazy. They built uh, a mechanical drummer. Really? They, yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure that it worked out for them. but they Like spent, an actual robot? Yes, they would play an acoustic drum kit. Yes. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You're a drummer, and you've worked with some of the great drummers of all time. You've left off the word wannabe. <laughs> okay, no. wannabe drummer. You've worked with some of the great drummers. When you work with somebody like Keltner, or if you know Keltner's coming in for a session, uh, do you have a preconceived idea of how you're going to deal with his instrument uh, in the studio? Or do you kind of, does it get customized to the session and the song yeah, or to it, what he brings in that day? Or how do you deal with a guy like yeah, that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the first thing is the, you know, is the kit itself. What, you know, just kind of take a look at what you're dealing with to figure out how you're going to mic it. And then it, to me, it depends on what the, uh, the song or the, the artist is, is about. Will you tailor your setup to the song as, as, like, as the session goes and you start working on different songs, you'll change what, what you do? If... If it calls for that, yes. Yeah, I I met Glenn Johns early on when he came over uh, at, he, to master with Doug Sachs. He brought over the the Who's Next record, and I met oh, him cool. on that record, and we be, we've since become great friends. And so I learned about his crazy style of drum miking, which three mics, yeah, yeah, three mics, uh, one mono overhead straight over, and the other one off to the side, kind of, yeah, and then a kick drum mic, and. Uh, and I, I loved the size, the perspective of size, but mm-hmm. that comes from having those two mics, you know, basically capturing the thing, the drums. Yeah. And I, I always wanted more impact on the snare, so I wasn't about to, to not have a snare mic. But uh, in 75, I produced uh, a direct-to-disc, the first direct-to-disc album with a yeah. vocalist, uh, the Thelma Houston and Pressure Cooker. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I had engineered the the previous album that Sheffield did, which was really uh, Lincoln Mayorga. It was a Lincoln Mayorga record, which is Lincoln was Doug Sachs's partner, and they did the the three Lincoln albums. Real, the first Lincoln album was done in '69. Direct to disc was done just to show their how good their mastering was, and they mm-hmm. figured the best way to show it was with a direct to disc. And for those that don't know, direct to disc means that you're gonna you're going to have the band play the whole side of the record from song one to song two to song four, whatever. Oh, and like even the space between the, between the songs? Yeah, well, it ha- it's longer. It's, it's not two or three seconds. It's six, eight, nine seconds between songs where the okay. musicians can change music and so on. Right. And set up if necessary. And, um, and uh, so Doug asked me in, in, uh, to do the, the volume three, and yeah. uh, that was the most fun I'd ever had in the studio. I mean, it was just, in three days, you had an album recorded, mixed, and mastered. Yeah. And uh, so I went to him and said, I want to produce one with a vocalist. And it took a few months to talk Doug. It, it took a few weeks to talk Doug into it. It took a couple of months to talk Lincoln into it. 
And uh, so I, that's what I done did. And I, in the record of Lincoln's that I had done, naturally, it had a lot of sameness to it because of the same band. They're not moving. Yeah. So I had decided what I would do on this film record was I would have two drummers and I got the, the, the two Jims, Jim Keltner and Jim Gordon. Keltner, oh my God. Who, Keltner, who's always a little on the back side of the beat, and Gordon, who was always on the front side of the beat. And I was hoping that that would give enough of a difference. And the studio didn't have enough inputs to mic the, all the drums both the same way. So uh, Keltner got the uh, Glenn Johns miking, but with a snare. Okay. And, and Gordon uh, got the Toms mic'd as well. And it was kind of fun on that album because uh, it's a long story. Those are my uh, two favorite drummers. Uh, one of the songs I wasn't digging the way it came off in the beginning. So I thought, uh, let, let's try both drummers on it. And so I said, guys, let's try both of you on it. And I kind of panned a, a bit of the stuff to the side so that you'd be well aware that it was two drummers. And um, uh, it was so funny because it started off, as you can imagine, with da doom the dope, <laughs> you know, with a serious flam on the backbeat. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, like all good pros with, with, you know, the final, the, the final takes, you know, there's still a little bit, but they, they definitely met in the middle. Did you end up mixing one hard left, one hard right, or are they kind no. of mixed across the spectrum? Yeah, I, I, f I flared them. So okay. I think they come off kind of mid left, mid right. So you know, you're well aware that there's two. So in that process, that audio file series, was the idea that you would like, did you show up and rehearse and like do all this pre-production and then track it? And then that was that, or was there more than one chance or did you just? No, here, uh, the, uh, the way I, I, I always tell it is that in a normal record, you spend, <clears throat> you spend, uh, 10% of the time in pre-production and 90% of the time in the studio with a directed disc record, 90% of the time is spent in pre-production and 10% right. in the studio. Yeah. So the band, you know, I had, I mean, that band was, you, you couldn't get a better band in 1975. I mean, I had the, yeah. Larry Carlton and Dean Parks. I had the two best guitar players, wow. had the two best drummers that I'd worked with, the two best percussionists. I had incredible keyboard players. Uh, and who was six, playing bass on that? Uh, Reiny Press, which okay. Reiny was great. And I, 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 he's the only one that wouldn't fit in that category exactly. He was absolutely yeah. there and played wonderfully. And I, I, to this day, don't understand, don't remember why I did that. And he'll hope to God that Reiny doesn't listen to this. Because uh, <laughs> he played great. Uh, but uh, I had worked with, I guess by then I'd worked with Neil Diamond. And I met him through Neil. Oh, okay. Um, with a band like that and written charts, you don't have anything to worry about. I did spend... Plenty of time beforehand, obviously, getting the right keys from Thelma, working that yeah. up, and the background singers. They didn't have to work their stuff up. Okay. We, we did a background rehearsal. But when we hit the studio, um, we, it, it was, it was a three days, a day and a half on side one, you know, and, yeah. and a day and a half on side two. It goes to a, right to the lathe that cuts a lacquer master. You know, it looks like an LP, but it's out of lacquer that is, is the, the cutter head cuts the grooves into, and you yeah. can't stop it. So you once you start, you're going. So and, that was in the studio too? Like it well, was you? No, there the was like a chain of... The studio that I used, that I fell in love with, was the studio right behind the mastering lab. Uh, okay. It was called Producer's Workshop. And yeah. it was a great sounding studio 
with uh, a, a homemade board, another homemade board. All my favorite consoles have been homemade, which is cool. another reason why I built my own. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was easy. It was just a tie line from the studio up to the mastering lab. Okay. To make it happen, and that uh, you know, and the the real, I'll tell you, one of the real artistic elements is the mastering engineer, uh, because normally on when you're doing making a lacquer. The, to, the, the, there's a computer that's going to tell the groove where to go, tell the cutter head where to go, because when right. there's something big or loud or a lot of bass, it has to open up and make more space so that that groove doesn't run into the next groove. So th- normally there's a, 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 a prehead on the tape machine that would r- read it to the computer to tell it, okay, here's coming a big bass thing, so you can do that. Well, yeah. we don't have any pre. The only pre right. we have is rehearsals, that the that the lathe operator has to memorize what what's coming where what's in coming. the song. Yeah, interesting. And, yeah, so that you don't have overcuts. And and then you never had any issue with like Thelma saying like, ah, oh, that kind of sucked. I mean, I need to stop and redo that. No, no, she no, no. She believe me, she never sucked. But <laughs> she was she was the the cute story is at that time uh, when I went wanted to do it, I was thinking I'd only worked with two singers that I knew could sit down and and deliver. And the first one was Barbara Streisand. So I called yeah. her boyfriend hairdresser manager at the time. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, for those of you that know what that means. And um, he started as her hairdresser and ended up her boyfriend and manager. Okay. And then he ended up taking over uh, one of the major f- film studios in Hollywood. So it just goes to wow. show you anything you can happen. That's right. Yeah. And it, it was literally, you know, it was literally like... Uh, you know, two minutes into my spiel, uh, go away, kid, you're bothering me. So <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. And then I yeah. had just done some, uh, a couple of sides on a new artist on Motown named Thelma Houston. And I, I recorded her vocals and I went, my gosh, this girl has a gorgeous sounding voice and she sure you know, does, perfect yeah. intonation. And so I just, that's the one. And I, fortunately I went to Motown and got a loan out agreement and, and that's mm-hmm. who we used. But to your point, sort of, uh, no, she sang like a bird every time. But on the on the last uh, on the last song of the record was uh, "Got to Get You Into My Life," the Beatle cut. Yeah. And so we're going along, and you know what what makes you know we usually got like uh, three three to four sides of the whole thing to to pick from to get you know pick the best take, and unfortunately the best take is 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 all songs. And which has to include the performance and the mixing. And yeah. realize, those of you that haven't, perhaps haven't thought this through, that when you're mixing from tape or a hard drive or from a computer, the, the guitar comes back every time you play that guitar. It's the same exact sound, same dynamics. The vocalist sings the exact same way every time. You're mixing this stuff live. They're, they're playing from a chart, but everything is not going to be identical. They're right. just not. Let alone, yep. let alone the vocal. And so it really is, it's about me about mixing, meaning I'm on those faders changing constantly yeah, to try to keep up. And so here we were on what hopefully would have been the last take because everything was perfect. I mean, I was happy for once, completely happy with what I had done. Um, everything sounded great. We got to that, got you into my life and it came to the second verse. Da, 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 da. Uh-huh. Dead silence out of Thelma. And I grabbed the fader <laughs> no. and shoved it. And all of a sudden, I heard a meek, I'm sorry. She locked up 
and had <laughs> forgotten the opening line of the second verse. Oh, no. And, of course, all, all the producer can do is pull the talk back and say, that's okay, sweetie, you're sounding yeah. phenomenal. We'll get it this time. And, oh, my gosh. So you got to redo the whole side the whole of the record. Side. And, yeah. oh and that was the one that got away, let me tell you. But yeah. there, there you go. Oh, wow. Um, another thing that you've done that I think is really interesting is revisit albums either that that you weren't involved with in the first place, like for remixing and uh, or or records that you were involved with back in the day, and then you have revisited them as a as a, I guess a remastered version. Uh, what's that process like for you? Well, the, the the only one I can think of that, that it's very weird, um, but uh, the 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 story is kind of weird, but. Um, so I was called by Motown to do a live album with Marvin Gaye. And uh, I went in and met with Suzanne DePass. And uh, she said, you know, we're kind of curious about this. He hasn't sung in a few years. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, we think it could be great. So What I year s- was, was that? Like 1980 something? No, no. 70, some middle 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I said, okay, I have two requests. The first request was born out of the fact that I had mixed a couple of albums uh, for Motown and they didn't give me credit. They gave the oh. Motown engineer credit. Weird. And yeah, and I was lucky if I got special thanks, Bill Schnee. And I was very ticked off. So I said to Suzanne, uh, two, two things. One, uh, I want credit on the album. She said, oh, of course. Yeah, right. Of course, okay. And two, <laughs> I want to mix it. You don't have to, he doesn't have to use my mix if he doesn't like it, but I at least want a shot at mixing it. Yeah. I, you know, I had done, I had done the Barbara Streisand one shot, um, a couple of years earlier and, uh, uh, which I, you know, I had never done one at that point. And it was Richard Perry that encouraged me. You know, I said, I don't know if I can do this, Richard. And he said, Oh, you can do it. You can do it. And, <laughs> And it, I was scared spitless, but yeah, I could do it. I did it. So a, a live I, record, you mean? A, a live, yeah. They're out there yeah. playing. The, you know, it's yeah. a concert. And what makes it even weirder is you don't get much of a rehearsal. You know, it right. was it was rehearse. You know, the band comes in to rehearse in the afternoon, and then you record it at night, and that's it. That that Marvin Gaye record is in the UK, right? No, that was oh. it, that was in um, uh, Oakland. Oh, okay. So I went to Oakland. Uh, that morning and checked out what uh, every, they had set up, everything I had said. And, uh, and that was it. We, you know, uh, I got, he only sang like two songs because he didn't want to burn his voice out. So Amazing. I, I grabbed the vocal sound from that. Were you in a truck or were you yes. like in the basement somewhere? No, or? a truck, okay. a, yeah. a recording truck. So, so uh, I got the vocal sound from those, you know, two takes and then finished rehearsing, you know, watching the band rehearse, listening to the band rehearse and making dialing in whatever I was going to dial in. And then, and then that night, kaboom. It's all one night. All one night. It's an incredible sounding record. What happened was I did get credit on the record. They did yeah. not call me to mix it. Ah, that's so And that would be the last time I ever worked for Motown Records, except Motown got sold. Where was that? Late eighties, I think early nineties, somewhere like that, in there. Yeah. And the new owners uh, had a, uh, special products person, a girl that did special products. And she called me up and said, Bill, uh, I want to remix that live album you did back in the seventies. I want you to remix it. Oh, cool. And so that, and I have, I've never heard of that being done. I mean, it was a successful record. Why in the world did she want it redone? I, I honestly don't, 
I don't know. But I was thrilled, needless to say. And yeah. uh, so um, the, the tapes came in and, you know, you're, uh, you notice, I noticed one thing. Yeah, your handwriting doesn't change. Neither does your overtime, neither does your sense of humor, because on the, on the tape legend, the box and, and the paper that shows what all the tracks are, there's, uh, st- there were strings on two tracks. Well, the strings are on the stage with a horn section and this kick butt uh, R&B rhythm section. Yeah, man. And so I, on the strings, there's an asterisk on the two tracks and on the bottom, the key to the asterisk says, good luck with this. <laughs> because, your note to yourself? To your well, to, self. No, to, yeah, to whoever mixed it. <laughs> to whoever you know, mixed it. Yeah, hopefully yeah. me. It wasn't back in the 70s, but it was now. And yeah. sure enough, it was rough. But uh, but I did mix it, and uh, I think I got a better mix, my guy, golly. And I, uh, I all I can say is it's sad that Marvin never got to hear it. So the Miles Davis stuff that you worked on, you, like you worked on, uh, I think, uh, Amandala and Tutu, right? Yeah, just mixing. Just mixing. So what was that process like for you when you get tracks that are done? Like, are they, you know, were you dealing with tracks that were recorded really well and you were finding yeah. it easy or was that a, a yeah. harder process? No, piece of cake. When, oh, wow. You know, okay. Yeah. When it's well recorded, it's a piece of cake. And, yeah. uh, you know, Marcus Miller, who had become one of my favorite bass players on the planet, uh, uh, not just as a bass player, but as a musician. He's just an astounding yes. musician. Yeah, he is, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he had, obviously, that the, it was a huge departure, the sound of the whole idea yeah. of the program stuff and whatnot. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I happen to love it. And it was amazing because the reviews were just completely left and right. Some, some absolutely right. loved it. Yeah. And some said it's as good as Sketches of Spain, and others said, you know, it's an embarrassment. It's, right. which is, I guess, was to be expected. Was Miles involved in the process? Did he? Not a bit. Nothing. It was all Marcus Miller? Yeah. yeah. Was he there with you? Like, were, yeah. were you work, working? Okay. By the way, I did do, this is, this is a whole another kind of stories. I did do a whole album with Miles that never got released. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, somewhere back in there, in those 80s, um, uh, Tommy LaPuma said, uh, I'm going to record Miles in the European jazz festivals that go on every summer and I, I want you to get a truck and we're going to f- follow him around and record them and so uh that's what I done did and uh my one and only time uh, that's when I met Miles for for the first and last time was on that tour and <clears throat> excuse me he it was we were it was the day of the first show that night and uh Tommy and Miles walk up to me and he introduces me and uh, the, the road manager walks up and says, Miles, the equipment didn't show up in time, but I've been on the phone all day and I've got good <laughs> equipment for tonight. I ain't using no effing equipment, rented equipment, <laughs> cancel the show. Really? And that was that. Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> and that was it. And uh, we went back to the hotel and even going up in the elevator, he was muttering about, you know, the terrible people. And the show didn't happen. Correct. Wow. Your interactions with Miles were minimal at, at most. Yeah. Robin Ford was on that tour. Okay. And uh, there were some, some burning nights, let me tell you. I bet. I bet. And when it was done, uh, whoever, uh, I can't remember what label he was on then, uh, I think Warner's, uh, but he, they evidently didn't want to release it. It was never mixed. Wow. Until, really? one of my pet peeves in life, until he died. And then they went through it all. You well, didn't get you didn't get a chance to no, go through it. No, okay. they didn't do. It. But I mean, my pet peeve is the fact that 
you know, I, I'm, I'm huge on, on artists' art. And, you know, if they, they should have a voice in, you know, how they're portrayed, you know, how they sound, how they're made to sound. Yep. You know, if they care about the mix, the mix, they certainly, you know, a lot, a lot of artists like that might not think about the mix, but they think of themselves <laughs> and they want to yep. be happy. You know, they want to be happy. And, and I, it just bothers me to no end. Uh, I won't name names. We all know different mm-hmm. families that have gone in after the artist dies and, and redoes them. And that's what happened in this case. Uh, okay. I love what my friend Kyle Lenning told me about, he did all the Randy Travis's records. Mm-hmm. And he said, Randy, Randy said, that'll never happen to me. So if he has, he finished a song and it wasn't going to be released, he didn't like it for whatever reason, he erased his vocal. Oh, okay. That's a good strategy. That'll yeah, work. Exactly. <laughs> but in your history of working with so many of these great musicians, like as studio musicians, especially if any particular ones really stood out to you as being, uh, you know, not necessarily like a better studio musician than another, but just in for your overall impression, like who to you has made the biggest impression as an engineer, like somebody that came in and just like owned their sound and owned the session in a way that um, was phenomenal and memorable for you? The great news is, I guess, I can't answer your question because there's so many. (laughs) I would say that, you know, so many of the really great studio musicians, let's take guitars. If you take, you know, say Dean Parks, and he's yeah. not the only phenomenal guitarist, obviously. But Dean Parks, he is in complete control of his sound. You know, but, but, you know he knows what, he's, what he gives you. You don't need to mess with it. There's no right. reason. You find that so much with, with the, the, the real top-of-the-crop pros. Mm-hmm. You know, drummers, they, they almost all know exactly how to tune their drums. You yeah. know, whereas you'll get a band and the guy doesn't really know. Uh, which is fine. I, you know, I'm pretty good at tuning drums. I learned as a wannabe drummer early on, I learned, uh, I had a drum set and I, uh, the, the first little Mickey Mouse studio when we moved it to Hollywood was right next door to a drum shop. So since we weren't doing very many sessions, uh, I spent a lot of time at the drum shop learning all about drums and the mechanics of a drum sound, the fact of what it is, you know, and how attack sustain ratio, what that means, and, and the kind of heads that will work better if you have this kind of a feel than, than a heavy hitter and all that kind of stuff. When the pros, they all have figured, figured all that out. And then, so, but, you know, when I, uh, as you were asking the question, I'm just going through, you know, a Rolodex, a mental Rolodex yeah, of, of, of people that, you know, uh, and I, because you don't have, I, I just think about feel. That's to, the thing to me is that, that you, you t- tend to see by when they get to that, you know, super, super pro stage, they, they sound good and they feel yeah. great. Your new book is out. What else are you working on these days? Like, are you in the studio a lot here in Nashville? Or are you traveling a lot? Or what, what else is taking up your time? Well, um, I'm, I'm not working as much as I would like to. I am working and, and doing some incredible projects. Any recent stuff you can talk about? Yeah, uh, a couple of really great albums. It's kind of funny. Uh, everything, you know, last year put a hold on everything. So, you know, nobody wanted to release records last year. But I've got uh, two in the can that I engineered here and one, a girl that I produced in Los Angeles that'll all be coming out this year or, or even next I okay. don't know. One is an artist named Michael Feinstein. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, uh, he's a, a bell. he's, yeah, everyone kind of knows his name. Not many people know. Him. He's a keyboard player, singer, 
uh, of of the Great American Songbook, really, and happens to okay. be, hap- you know, he's I've been to his house in Los Angeles after meeting him, one of the sweetest, nicest people ever, and he uh, he is a complete. Uh, he he is the encyclopedia, both in his head and what he has in terms of all kinds of memorabilia from the era. Okay. Twenties, thirties, and forties music. He knows it like the back of his hand. You mentioned some song from that era, and he'll he'll tell you you know three versions that no one has even known about, in addition to the whatever was done by the people that made it famous. He's just brilliant guy, and he wanted to do an album. And this is where I don't know if you remember Nipper. Nipper was the RCA dog. Yeah, in, the, sure. in, in the beginning, there's that the big horn, you know. Yeah. And and he's got his head cocked as he's looking, like he's heard music, yeah. and the dog is going, "What's that?" And RCA is telling you, "That's our wonderful sound." And yeah. so here's where the listeners and you will get a, a a Nipper moment. He wanted to do an album of of Gershwin songs done as duets with country artists as the duet oh, partners. That's very specific. Yeah, and, and kind of weird, kind of the headcock thing, like, huh? And uh, my friend Kyle Lenning was asked if he wanted to do it, and he, he gave the headcock. And then as he thought about it, he called Michael and said, it's a very interesting idea. What would you think if we didn't use piano? And Michael is a piano player, and all yeah. of these songs every one of them, I'm sure, were written on the piano. Absolutely. And, and Michael went, I like that. And so what Kyle has done is put a group of musicians together, all acoustic, kind of like Union Station, if you're familiar uh, with okay. them. Abs- yeah, for sure. Uh, we, so we have, you know, the fiddle and accordion and upright bass, and the drums are all stirring a salad. And the combination of those beautiful instruments playing those chord changes with those melodies... Uh, you know, that's a great idea. Lyrics. It it is a sensational album. The other album is uh, a girl named Mandy Barnett that the producer uh, came up with a, a, what amounts to a brilliant idea when they were meeting together. Uh, Fred Mullen, the producer, said, uh, "Why don't we do a uh, a country Motown album?" And she went, "Huh? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so." And he said, "Okay, well." Another idea. What about a Torch album, like the songs from the last Billie Holiday album? And her eyes got as big as saucers because 20 years ago, somebody gave her that album and said, you know, Mandy, someday you should do a record like this. And wow. here Fred was <laughs> asking, her, yeah, asking her to do that very thing. And then in a stroke of nothing but genius, Fred called on Sammy Nestico, the great old arranger, that you know, phenomenal arranger, when I say old, how old? He was 95 when he did the arrangements. And he called, he, Fred called Sandy and said, what do you, Sammy, and said, what do you think? And Sammy said, Fred, I'm 95 years old. Give me one song. If I can get through that, I'll give it to you. <laughs> and you can figure out, you know, get some other arrangers to copy it, mimic it. He said, okay, sounds good. So he turned it in and Fred said, called him up and said, it's beautiful. Thank you. Sammy said, Fred, let me do another. And you know the rest of the story. Wow, <laughs> he, amazing. He did them all. And uh, it, it is the last album he did before, sadly, he passed away at 97 a couple of uh, weeks, weeks ago, several weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, everyone should run out and get the book, Chairman at the Board. That's out now. And um, I'm looking forward to getting my mitts on it and reading it. 
and so many great stories. And thank you so much, Bill, for, for oh. sharing your, your time and talking about all this stuff. I really thank, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really right. appreciate it. All right. That was my conversation with Bill Schnee. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back very soon, possibly in one week, possibly in two weeks. I don't quite know yet. With another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Over and out. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.